0: Annihilation. 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 One minute at a time. <laughs> Quote, Just as psychoanalysis reconstructs the original traumatic situation in order to release the repressed material, so we are now being plunged back into the psychic past, uncovering the ancient taboos and drives that have been dormant for epochs. Each one of us is as old as the entire biological kingdom, and our bloodstreams are tributaries of the great sea of its total memory. End quote. J.G. Ballard, The Drowned World Lomax, Benedict Wong, and two other men stand in a room with Lena, Natalie Portman. Benedict Wong was born 20th February 1970, or possibly 3rd June 1971, in Manchester, England. He has 72 acting credits on IMDb from 1992 to the present. Notable roles include Kublai Khan in the Netflix series Marco Polo, and Master Lin in the sci-fi series Deadly Class, as well as numerous roles in science fiction films beside Annihilation – Moon, Prometheus, The Martian – and he plays Wong in the MCU, appearing in Doctor Strange and Avengers Infinity War so far and set to appear in Avengers Endgame. His character here, Lomax, shares his name with a short-lived British band, Nebraska ghost town, and also a character in J.G. Ballard's novel, The Drought. He opens the minute with the first line of the film, Lomax, what what did did you eat? eat? The scene is not in Garland's original script, nor really is Lomax, or any of this flash-forward. The question itself matters, as does this scene. The question regards a basic physiological process that must happen for life to... life. Lena's inability to adequately answer should be our first sign that something is inherently wrong in whatever situation we have here in Media Reds. It is a classic setup for a story that will otherwise get off to a slow start. Well, a slow start relative to so many other films today. Annihilation is not a thriller, though it includes moments of intense and sudden action. It is not a horror film, except in a large-scale existential Lovecraftian sense. It is science fiction. It is a Ballardian equation of the world is ending, this thing will consume it, what will you do, who will you be? Notably, in Four Visions of the Apocalypse, Disintegration, and the Early Work of J.G. Ballard, Nicholas Labarre argues, quote, Ballard's novels are tales of personal achievement rather than stories of destruction and death. Or, to be more accurate, that this destruction is only an element of a maturation process involving the main characters. End quote. And so we come to major themes within Annihilation immediately. Consumption presumes life as usual. The hazmat suits suggest life is very much not usual. We angle on Lena as Lomax continues. She's thinking. Lomax. You had rations, rations for two, two, two weeks. weeks. You, you inside were inside for four months. months. Lena. What not remember Angle on Lomax, second 13. Lomax. How long, long did you, you think you were inside? inside? On Lena, second 17. Lena. Dana, days. days. Maybe, maybe weeks. weeks. Angle and Lomax. Lomax. What, what happened, happened to Josie Radek Radek? We're being introduced to other characters by name before we are offered the names of these characters we see. If you've been listening to all these episodes so far, you have heard about the character names here. I suggested before that Raddick was a reference to Carl Raddick, Marxist and communist leader. However, that reference would come from Ballard, not from Garland. As Raddick is a character in J.G. Ballard's The Crystal World and Lena. Lena. I don't first know. First names for these characters seem original to Garland's script. He had in fact already had a Selena in his script for 28 Days Later and a Cassie in his script for Sunshine. Lena's last name, which does not survive into the film, is the important one here. Her first name may be related to Light, but her last name, Karens, comes directly from J.G. Ballard's The Drowned World. Ballard may have taken the name Karens from Royal Navy Commander John Karens, who notably ran his frigate, the Amethyst, Stealthily through a communist blockade in China in 1949. He also served as a member of parliament. He died in 1985, aged 70 years. Regarding the story to come, Lena, whether or not she is Lena, which is perhaps more of a philosophical question than a scientific one, really doesn't know what happened to Raddick, nor will we conclusively know what happens to Raddick. She will surrender herself to the transformation brought on by the shimmer, and she will... stop being Josie Raddick. Ankle on Lomax. Lomax. What about, what about Shep- the- Shepard? Thoracin. I've pointed out before that Shepherd's first name, Cass, may be short for Cassandra, a reference to Greek myth, the woman who knows the future but no one will believe her. The last name is a generic hero name around Hollywood, but also might be a reference to the late science fiction writer Lucia Shepard. Catherine Dunn explains on sfsite.com, in an introduction to Lucia Shepard, quote, Shepherd uses the genre forms for his own literary purposes, and he is always chasing the big fish, the central questions, the nature of good and evil, the search for meaning and significance. The Dragon Griot stories invest grit and physical credibility in high fantasy. The Scale Hunter's Beautiful Daughter is as rigorous an exploration as I've ever read of the question of free will. The novel Green Eyes begins by rattling the whole notion of individual identity, not Cheever or Roth, Bellow or Updike, have written more tenderly and acutely about the breakup of marriage than Shepard does in The End of Life as we know it. I don't think anyone has written more devastating fiction about the human processes of war than Lewis Shepard. Among other praises, critics have compared Shepard to Robert Stone and called him the rock-and-roll Joseph Conrad. This is understandable considering shared skills, as well as war and dark hearts as subject matter. And all three writers know what they're talking about. Reality is powerful launching pad for the imagination. When Shepard sets a story in a particular locale, I bet he's been there, or somewhere very like it. The details of color, smell, and feel are too crisp and vivid not to have solid roots. End quote. Additionally, because everything here seems to be a reference to Ballard, there is a shepherd in Ballard's short story, Myths of the Near Future. Thornton is a character from J.G. Ballard's The Crystal World. Additionally... Whether by coincidence or planning, Thornton's first name, Anya, may be a reference to Olin Thornton's planet Anyar from the Destiny's Crucible series of novels. Lena. Dead. Anna. Lena saw the bodies of both Shepherd and Thornton. Their fates are conclusive. Anglon Lomax. Lomax. Ventress. Ventress. Ventress takes her name also from a character in J.G. Ballads, The Crystal World. While the male doctor Ventress is a main character therein, his wife's first name is Serena, which is a variation of Selena, which just may be where our lead here gets her name, Lena. Angle on Lena. Lena, I don't know. Lena doesn't know what happened, but it's more a problem in explaining it. Angle on Lomax, second fifty five. Lomax. Then want to do you that. know. Angle on Lena, second fifty eight. Time runs out for this minute. All obfuscated setup and foreshadowing, and arguably Lomax begins and ends the minute with the most important, broader questions. Allahe Sufistea and Sayed Ali Miraniat explain, In Psyche in Eco-Apocalypse, a reading of Ballard's The Drowned World. In International Letters of Social and Humanistic Sciences, September 2015, quote, Ballard is not interested in simple apocalyptic worries of how man becomes extinct or finds a way to escape. He goes through the heart of the apocalypse by uniting the transformation of physical universe with the human psyche, end quote. Peter Brigg explains, in The Drowned World, a survey, Survey of Science Fiction Literature 1979, quote, A very careful stoicism is at the core of Ballard's position. Stoicism strong enough to tolerate a conception of the human race being terminated by the reactions of its genetic materials to the implacable thrust of cosmic forces, end quote. In case you were still not following... J.G. Ballard did not write the novel Annihilation. Did not have anything to do with the making of the film. He died in London in 2009, aged 79 years. But Annihilation is Ballardian. David Pringle identifies some of the recurrent elements within a Ballardian text. In Earth is the Alien Planet, J.G. Ballard's Four-Dimensional Nightmare, 1970. Quote, Such things as concrete weapons ranges, dead fish, "...abandoned airfields, radio telescopes, crashed space capsules, sand dunes, empty cities, beaches, fossils, broken jukeboxes, crystals, lizards, multi-story car parks, dry lake beds, medical laboratories, drained swimming pools, high-rise buildings, predatory birds, and low-flying aircraft." It is post-apocalyptic. It is the existential dread of Lovecraftian horror in science fiction terms. It is the end of the world jutting up against what it means to be human when mortality is front and center. What did you eat? How did you survive? In this alien space, how did you remain human? How did you escape? What happened to the rest of your adventuring party? Did you kill them? Getting into spoilers, what is it that makes Lena and Kane, husband and wife, uniquely suited to surviving such an inherently hostile environment as the Shimmer? What does this film say about marriage, about personal relationships, about having something and someone to live for? And from a philosophical angle, whether or not Lena has been replaced, whether or not Cain has been replaced, does this make them no longer who they were? It's the Theseus ship paradox, writ large. Who is this woman sitting in this chair being interrogated by Lomax? What does she know? Does that knowledge define her identity? Let me backtrack. From Plutarch, Theseus. The ship wherein Theseus and the youth of Athens returned from Crete had 30 oars and was preserved by the Athenians down even to the time of Demetrius Valerius. So they took away the old planks as they decayed, putting in new and stronger timber in their places, insomuch that this ship became a standing example among the philosophers, the logical question of things that grow, one side holding that the ship remained the same and the other contending that it was not the same. The question is usually one of gradation. Replace one board, the ship is essentially the same. Replace 2. Replace 3. Replace 20. At what point does the ship of Theseus become not the ship of Theseus? Nosen writes in the Utney Reader in November 2013, quote Some maintain that changing one plank changes the ship and makes it no longer the ship of Theseus. Others claim that as long as there is at least one plank from the original, it is still the original. There are also those who maintain that the changed ship is always the same as the original ship because it has the form of the original. None of these different positions are wrong. However, there is no reason to say that any of them are correct, either. Let us continue asking more questions about our beleaguered boat. What happens if we switch the old wooden planks for more modern plastic planks? Then, as we change more and more of the planks, the ship will be made of a different material than the original. What happens if the people who replace the planks make mistakes in putting in the new planks, and the ship has a slightly different form? Another question. Does it matter who is making all these changes to the ship? That is, whether one group of workers does it or another. If the ship is to be preserved for hundreds of years, then surely many different people will have to be making the changes. What if we make so many changes to the boat that it can no longer float out to sea? Can we still call it the ship of mighty Theseus if it cannot perform the same function as the original? Such questions go on indefinitely. I will restrain myself and discuss just one more scenario. Imagine that every time a plank is changed, rather than consigning the old planks to the scrap heap, we store them in a warehouse. After some time, all the old planks are assembled into a ship. This new construction is made to look exactly like the old ship, with the planks in their original position. Question. Which ship has the right to call itself the ship of Theseus? A ship with the replaced planks, or the ship constructed out of the old planks? A common answer to some of these questions is that the ship remains the same because the changes are gradual. However, it is not clear why that should make a difference. How gradual must the changes be in order for the original ship to maintain its status? Is there a minimum speed limit for changes? To put the question of what is gradual in perspective, consider the case of Washington's axe. A certain museum wanted to preserve the axe of the founding father of the United States. The axe consists of two parts, a handle and a head. As time went on, the wooden handle would rot, and the metal head would rust. When needed, each of these two parts was replaced. As the years passed, the head was changed four times, and the handle was replaced three times. Is it still Washington's axe? Notice that here there is no question of the change being gradual. Every time a change is made, half the parts of the axe are replaced. Our discussion is not limited to ships and axes. A tree is lush and green in the summer and bare and brown during the winter. Mountains rise and fall. Cars and computers get refurbished. Any physical object changes over time. This is the content of Heraclitus' famous dictum that you cannot step into the same river twice. For Heraclitus, the river changes at every instant. End quote or my own alteration slash specification, that the same you cannot step into the river twice, because whether the river has changed, or you have changed, or more realistically, both, what remains is not that which was. This Lena here in minute two is probably the same Lena we will see within the Shimmer. There's a possibility that the Groundhog Day enthusiast in me likes regarding the time skip in minute thirty, but we will get to that when we get to that. But she has been changed seeing what she has seen, psychologically. And physiologically, she has been changed by being within the shimmer. Lena is not Lena. And Lena is Lena. You are not the you who began listening to this episode. And also, you are. I am not the same person who began this episode. And also, I am. What do you know? know, indeed? We spoke. What was it we said? Wordlessly watching, he wakes by the window and wonders at the empty place inside. Is all we are annihilation. <laughs>